It's really our prayer as we study a book like the Gospel of Matthew that we would see Jesus and that we would crown him as our unrivaled king. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 8 today. If you want to go ahead and turn there, Matthew 28, excuse me, Matthew 8, 28, where we'll start. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, we invite you to grab the Bible that's in the rack in front of you. You can use that one. And if you don't have your own Bible, you're welcome. We invite you to take that home with you. That's our gift to you. As you're turning there, a couple of quick things going on in the life of our church that I would just remind you of. They're on the front of your bulletin. But um, coming up next Sunday, uh, sun, next excuse me, next Saturday evening is the uh, Sunday evening, is the Parenting Roundtable. Uh, next Sunday evening, the 22nd, is the Parenting Roundtable. It'll be in here. Um, it'll be at 530, uh, from 530 to 730. We invite you to, to come to that. We'll have dinner together that night. And then the following Wednesday, the 25th, I did all my math right, uh, we'll have our fall festival outside on the grounds. We're hoping the, the weather will be good for that. Uh, and I want to make sure that everybody knows it's not just for the kids or people with kids. It's a great opportunity to come and share a meal uh, and get to know someone. And so we invite you uh, to bring food to share. We will have a costume contest for uh, children, youth, and adults with prizes that go with those. You'll get to vote on those. So uh, bring your best. Nothing scary or inappropriate. Uh, and then we're actually bringing in, we're, we're, we're going to have a chili cooking contest too. And just so there's fairness, we're actually bringing in judges from outside the church, right? So there's no, uh, n- no uh, favoritism. We're even, we're even going to have a trophy. So there you go. Uh, that'll be Wednesday the 25th at 6 p.m. here at the church. Uh, food will be in the fellowship hall, and then we'll, uh, we'll hang out mostly outside. Uh, and then... Something I wanted to let parents know, for uh, parents of kids 10 and up, we are going to have a Discover Grace for Kids class starting on the 29th, uh, the evening of the 29th. You should have gotten an email about that, uh, but we'll be uh, following up. And if you would like for your child to participate in that, uh, your, if your child you think is ready to profess faith in Jesus or uh, learn about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, to be a part of the church, that is the class for them. It's very similar to our membership class for adults. It just happens to be uh, a little more kid-friendly. So that'll start on the 29th. Uh, feel free to shoot any questions you have about that to me uh, or to Zach. That said, let's look at God's Word. Matthew chapter 8, verse 28. Just to give you a little bit of context, this is just after Jesus has calmed the storm. So they've sailed across the the Sea of Galilee. And Matthew tells us this, And when he came, that is, Jesus, came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of pigs, of many pigs, was feeding at not some distance, feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. 
So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled. And going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, seeing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. All flesh is like grass. And all its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, these may be familiar stories to some of us, new stories to others, strange to all. And so, Lord, we pray that you would teach us, that you would help us to behold wonderful things in your word and that we would be transformed and renewed by hearing it. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, if you've been with us the past few weeks, we've, as we've gone through Matthew chapter 8, you may have realized that this, this section of Matthew, Matthew has included a lot of miracles in chapter 8. Uh, and what we've said, right, is that Jesus' miracles tell us something about him. They reveal something about him. They reveal his authority. In fact, they reveal that he is God himself. He's that kind of authority. And we've seen that that's a loving authority. It's a kind authority. But it's authority all the same. Jesus is one who has authority. And what I noticed this week is that there seems to be an intensification as Matthew goes. That the as, as, as Matthew tells the story of Jesus and these miracles, that they're actually intensifying in their power. And so what I, here's what I, I mean by that. Uh, we began with Jesus healing people. Um, and we have some control over illness. We can do some things to help heal people. It's usually, you know, it can be effective. Uh, it takes time. It all of those things, right? Our, our authority is somewhat limited. But we cannot heal like Jesus healed. When Jesus speaks, it's done. Right then, right? So Jesus has authority over illness that we don't have. Then we saw last week that Jesus has power over nature that we certainly don't have. That he's able to look at a raging storm and say, stop it. And it stops. Immediately. But all of those miracles happen in what we might call the natural 
world, the physical world, the world we can see and touch. The miracles that we look at today happen in the supernatural realm. Now, I want to make sure we understand that doesn't mean they're less real, right? What happens in the supernatural has an impact on the natural as we see here. But what we see is that Jesus' power extends beyond what we can see in the natural world into the supernatural world. Jesus doesn't simply have power over uh, human bodies and over nature, as impressive as that is. He actually, he even has power over evil and sin. And so that's how we're going to look at this passage today, just in those two headings. We're going to look at Jesus' power over evil, and we're going to look at Jesus' power over sin. Let's begin with the evil part. Uh, Jesus and his disciples have crossed over the Sea of Galilee. They've come from the, uh, the northwest, uh, Capernaum, and they've sailed across down to the southeast to the region here that Matthew mentions. Uh, they've gone from Jewish territory to Gentile territory. Uh, a Gentile is a non-Jewish person, and uh, evidence of that is seen in that they're herding pigs. Pigs are unclean animals to Jews, so they did not herd pigs. So this is Gentile territory. Jesus is, is with people other than his own people. Jesus is a Jew. The people that he meets on this side of the sea are not. And as the disciples, you can almost imagine the scene, right? The disciples are, are pulling the boat up onto the shore. I imagine they're probably still in shock uh, from having witnessed Jesus calm the storm so dramatically when they are met with a very different storm raging out at them from the tombs nearby. Two demon-possessed men come hurtling towards them, screaming. Demons are evil spirits. They, as we see in the Bible, can possess humans. They can cause them to act in certain ways. The Bible doesn't explain this. It simply shows it. In fact, the only time uh, where we really see a lot of demon possession in the Bible is around the ministry of Jesus. We don't see it really much at all in the Old Testament. We see it referenced some in the New, but most of it happens around the ministry of Jesus. And the rest of the Bible is pretty quiet about that. And I think that's because of the nature of what Jesus has come to do. He has come to push back, as we said a couple of weeks ago, the effects of the curse. He has come to deal with the evil in the world, and that includes evil spirits. And make no mistake, we believe that evil does exist. Not just in humans, but there, is actu- there are actually supernatural evil forces at work in the world. Satan and his minions called demons. These men, two men, have been possessed by demons. That means demons live in them and are controlling them, animating their actions. We see that they live in the tombs. In essence, they live in a cemetery, uh, which adds a note of of darkness there. But really what that's saying is that they have been cast out of town. They're living where there are no living people. Uh, And they are violent. They're so fierce that nobody can pass that way. And what we see is that they are yelling at Jesus. They are crying out, what have you to do with us? It's another way of saying, leave us alone. Why are you here? Don't 
mess with us. We see that they know him. They can identify him. They know that at some point they will be judged by him. Right? They ask, have you, have you come to torment us before the time? They're expecting Jesus. But I also want you to notice that they're not omnipotent. They're not all-powerful and they're not all-knowing. They are surprised to see Jesus here and now. His appearance there on the shore takes them by surprise. Nor are they all-powerful. They recognize Jesus, and they recognize that they uh, must do whatever he says. And so it's important for us to point out that, that Christianity is not dualism. Dualism, right, so Star Wars, okay? I've just alienated like half of you, but for the other half, right? In Star Wars, right, you have this eternal battle between good and evil, and they're always fighting one another to see who's going to gain supremacy in the end. That's dualism. That's Eastern religion. That's not Christianity. There is no battle for supremacy in the end. God is supreme, always has been, and always will be. He rules supreme. So as powerful as evil forces are, they are not more powerful than God. The demons have no choice but to obey Jesus. There's not even a question about it. Now, they do ask his permission to go into pigs, this herd of many pigs, and Jesus gives it. And the result is that this huge herd of pigs runs headlong down the hill into the sea and is destroyed. Why? We don't know. Why does Jesus do that? Why does Jesus give them permission? What happens to the demons? That's not really, those aren't really questions that Matthew is interested in answering. That's not really the point. But what Matthew does tell us is very instructive. First, we see that demonic power, evil power, is destructive. It is not life-giving. These demons had made these men violent. They had made them outcasts. We see from Luke and from Mark that they were crazy. And the, the presence of the demons in the pigs causes the pigs to destroy themselves. And so the first thing that we can learn from this is that demonic power is destructive. We believe that Satan and demons are real, they are evil, and their aim is to destroy. It is not to give life. And so let us be wary of evil and let us not play games with it. It's also easy for us to miss the point just like the townspeople missed the point. Jesus has liberated two men from the power of darkness. And rather than come out and rejoice and welcome Jesus into their city, the townspeople tell him to leave. They see the loss of the pigs, which would have been a lot of money. And that to them is more important than what has happened to these two men. And even we might say this was a wasted trip. 
I mean, you think about the amount of time and energy that goes into this short little trip across the Sea of Galilee. Uh, estimates are it probably took them about two hours to sail across. So Jesus sails across the Sea of Galilee for two hours. He's on the shore, I don't know, an hour, maybe an hour and a half. And then he sails back. Four-hour round trip. And look at the results. Most of the people wanted him to leave. We might be prone to look at that and see that, man, Jesus, that was kind of a waste of time. If we, if we were going to evaluate Jesus' ministry based on, uh, if I was going to evaluate Jesus' ministry based on American business technique, we would say, this was a bad investment. This was a waste of time. This was an inefficient use of your time, Jesus. But I am struck and convicted by the compassion of Jesus, that he would make a four-hour round trip across the sea to liberate two men from the power of the evil one. Two men that everyone else around them had, had left alone. They couldn't do anything about it. Jesus goes and he saves these two men from hands that are too strong for them. And that's the main thing. Jesus has come... What we see in this is that Jesus has come to redeem us from hands too strong for us. That's what we see here. And it's not just the evil outside of us. Jesus has also come to rescue us from the evil inside of us as well. Because Jesus has power over evil and sin. How do we see Jesus' power over sin? Well, before we look at the story of the paralytic, I want you to think, what is it that you like least about yourself? If you were asking, and maybe you have asked God to change something about you, what is that thing? What's the battle that you're tired of fighting? What's the struggle that you've given up multiple times? The thing that you wish you could change. We've already seen Jesus heal sick people. So the fact that he heals this paralyzed man is, is nothing new. But it's what Jesus says here. There is something new. I want you to imagine the scene. Jesus is back in Capernaum. We know from Mark and Luke that he's teaching in a home and a, a great crowd has gathered and this group of friends brings, uh, this group of people brings their paralyzed friend lying on a cot uh, before Jesus. In fact, we learn from Mark and Luke that they actually tear the roof off the house to lower him down in front of Jesus. Matthew doesn't share that detail. Matthew's very direct and to the point. He wants to focus on Jesus. And no one says anything. But the need is pretty clear. This man is paralyzed. And they want Jesus to help. In fact, it says that Jesus sees their faith. That's interesting. He sees the faith, the trust of these friends and, their, and the man on the mat. He sees their faith. They trust that Jesus can do something for their friend. And Jesus rewards their faith. 
but maybe not initially in the way that we would expect him to. First, he begins by encouraging him. He says, take heart, be of good cheer, be of good courage, take heart, my son. I remember when we, uh, we were in East Asia back in 2008, uh, working with college students there, and we were leading a team of college students, uh, and one of our students uh, tore his ACL while playing sports. Um, and so we had to take him to the doctor, and he got a, he got a brace on and crutches and all that good stuff. Uh, and he came back the next day, and our Asian students were kind of like, whoa, what are, you, what are you doing? Apparently in their culture, if you were injured like that, I don't, I don't know if shame would be the right word, but it was just kind of understood that you stayed at home until you were all better. Then you came back out in public. Maybe it was a fear of showing weakness. Not really sure. But it was very bizarre to them that this American kid would show up on crutches with a brace around his leg to hang out with them. They felt like you probably should hide. I wonder if this man felt that way. I wonder how much shame and grief he felt as a result of his paralysis. No doubt pain. And yet, so so it's very encouraging to me that the first word that Jesus speaks to him is, take heart. Be of good cheer. I know it's been a long road, but I'm about to take away all your burdens. Jesus says, take heart. And then how do you expect him? What, what do you expect him to say next? What do you think the crowd expects him to say? Be healed. Get up. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. Now, maybe Jesus could sense that this man had some internal angst. Maybe he felt very guilty, uh, weighed down by sin. Uh, I kind of wonder if I, would, if I was the paralyzed man, if, I, if I'd be like, wait, what? Thank, thank you, uh, but I was looking for something else. At any rate, what Jesus says, when Jesus says your sins are forgiven... This would have sucked all of the air out of the room. In fact, it did. Right? The scribes are like, in their heads, they're going, he can't say that. He's blaspheming. What's blasphemy? Uh, it's an insult to God. Right? It's claiming to be God or claiming to do something that only God can do. That would be insulting to God. And the scribes believe that Jesus is blaspheming. Because he's claiming to do something that only God can do, which is forgive sins. Of course, it's only blasphemy if you're not God. Which is exactly what Jesus wants them to see. Right? So, Jesus begins by forgiving this man's sins. He begins by looking at him and saying, All of those things that have separated you from God... All of the things that you've said and felt and thought and done. All of that burden that's weighing you down. All of that debt. I forgive it. I remove it from you. What's Jesus doing? 
he's addressing the man's real need. I mean, yes, the need of the paralytic is great. To have a whole healthy body is great. But you can have a whole healthy body and still be burdened by sin and go into hell. And so Jesus addresses his true need, his unseen need, the need for forgiveness of sins. Jesus forgives it. And then he looks at the scribes who are in full-blown religious panic mode. How dare this man talk this way? And it's interesting. Just like he saw the faith of those who brought the paralytic, he also sees the hearts of these scribes. And he says, why are you thinking evil in your hearts? He addresses the, the seat of who they are, their hearts, their motives, their desires. Why are you thinking evil about me? What's he saying? You're wrong about me. You're thinking the wrong thing. And to prove it, he gives them a little test. He says, which of these is easier to say? Is it easier to say, rise, pick up your mat and go home? Or is it easier to say, your sins are forgiven? Well, your sins are forgiven is a lot easier to say. Because nobody can prove it. It addresses something internally supernaturally, that spiritually, that, that we cannot see. Nobody can verify whether, in fact, this man's sins have been forgiven or not. That's the easy thing to say. And Jesus doesn't answer the question, at least not with his words, but he turns to the paralytic and he says, rise, get up, and go home. He heals the man's paralysis to prove that he has the authority to forgive sins. The external, the external miracle is proof that Jesus has the authority to do exactly what he says, and that is to forgive the man's sins. And that's really the ultimate authority. Because my greatest need and your greatest need are not the illnesses that we struggle with. They are not the, the struggles that we have. They're not our circumstances. My greatest need and your greatest need is the burden of debt of sin that we carry. And that must be addressed. And Jesus has come to do that very thing. This is the ultimate authority because our greatest threat, our greatest enemy is not Satan. Though he is a great enemy. Our greatest enemy is our own sin. And Jesus has come to deal with that. Now, as it turns out, to say your sins are forgiven is a rather easy thing to say. But it is a rather difficult thing to do. In fact, the forgiveness of sins will require that the Son of God endure life as a man in a fallen world. The forgiveness of sins will, will require the Son of God to cry out to his father in Gethsemane. The forgiveness of sins will require the Son of God to be cursed, beaten, spat upon, and tortured by the very people he came to save. And ultimately, the forgiveness of sins will require the Son of God to face the gruesome death of Calvary's cross. 
It is certainly easy to say your sins are forgiven. But it is no easy thing to do. But Jesus is able to say it because he has come to do it. He has the authority to forgive sins because he has given his life as a ransom for many. It's the war memorial in Washington, D.C. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mess this up. Should have written it down. Freedom is not free. Is that what it says? can't remember. Um, we often think of forgiveness as like just kind of a wiping away. But that's not in fact what it is. It's, it's a debt. It's a weight. It has to be transferred somewhere. Right? If I loan you $1,000 and then you say, hey, I can't pay that back. There's just no way. And I say, okay, the debt's forgiven. What's the result for you? You're free. What's the result for me? I'm out $1,000. Someone has to absorb the cost of forgiveness. And when Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven, that doesn't just disappear into thin air. No, he absorbs that cost himself. He takes it on himself. And not just for this paralytic, but for me and for you. That's what Jesus has come to do. That's what makes him the unrivaled king. He has the power to forgive sin on earth. Do you believe him? Let's pray. Lord in heaven, thank you for demonstrating your power while on earth. For showing us that as, as many and as mighty as our enemies may be, they are no match for you. That you are the unrivaled king. Lord, we also thank you that you use your unmatched power to liberate us from the power of evil and from the power of our sin. That you use your power, Lord Jesus, to forgive us our sins. You absorb the cost yourself so that we can be free from it. Lord, would you help us to walk in that freedom for those, Lord, who do not yet know you this morning. I pray that they would consider these things. And that they would believe. And that they would know the freedom and joy that we all together would know the freedom and joy that this, that these demon-possessed men knew. And that this paralytic knew. May we worship and adore you. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.